This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Come with us tonight to Northgate Town Hall... The show we went to was called Creating a Climate for Change and I interviewed one of the directors, uh, Danny Diesendorf and Lucy Best, two weeks ago. So you have a little bit of an inkling what it's all about. The subject of climate change is often treated as a Q&A. So they started with a Q&A with panel, a very interesting panel about various objective things we can do in our cities, uh, high-speed rail, greening the cities having uh, low-cost solar panels for people. Those sort of nuts and bolts issues were discussed and the sensible questions from the audience were answered. So that's the first part of our show. But then after an interval, we go into a different space, which I have also tried to cover on the Beyond Zero Emissions community show, where we go more into the psychology of it because it is so difficult to deal with this situation of climate change we know we're the biggest coal exporting country in the in the world we know our emissions are rising despite all our uh, best efforts we keep electing governments who are determined it seems to do very little you know they make big they make targets but they're not big enough and so we know this is an existential crisis for us. We can't just deal with it in sensible questions and answers. So the actors got people up on the stage who had put their hand up or called out a word or a sentence. The mood was established by the music. And the actors played back to the people who came up on the stage their stories. People might just say a few little thoughts, uh, sort of just the gist of the story, and the actors turned it into something else. I hope you really enjoy it. It was drama in the best sense. It was sort of therapeutic drama. It was trying to give us back more than what we gave them. And I really loved seeing it and uh, applaud the actors. So Playback Theatre gave us a wonderful evening. It was called Creating a Climate for Change. Now we're going to start with the first speaker in the panel, Lucy Best. I'm a greenie. There you go. Yay! I was hoping I'd get that response. Um, so here we are talking about climate change. In my role at Positive Charge, I don't actually get to talk about that very much because it's really scary and people don't want to talk about climate change because um, it's too big. So we talk about action and we talk about what you can do and how you can do it. And we work with local councils um, because thankfully a lot of local government does have a climate change strategy and is aware and does believe the science as I expect most of you people in the room do. Um, so we use council leverage, council trust, council networks to get to the community and talk to people like you 
who do believe the science, as well as lots of people who are more interested in hearing about saving money or um, having a more comfortable home in these extreme weather events. Let's not talk about why. Um, so we have a booklet that you can all take home with lots of tips. Um, and I, as Lenka said, I go out and talk to lots of different people and I get to hear lots of people's response to this big scary t- topic of climate change. And um, I'll give you a bit of my story. Um, I, was a, I, am, I have been a greenie since I was a child and I was the annoying housemate in my 20s who would turn things off at the plug so people had to reprogram their VHS recorder. <laughs> I was the person who rinsed everyone's bottles and dragged them about 800 metres down the road to the bottle bank for recycling. Um, And I was at Victoria Station in London rattling tins to raise money for environmental agencies and get people to sign petitions. Um, And then in 2004, my husband and I were living in the Caribbean and it was hit by hurricane, Category 5 hurricane, which is the same as what hit um, Hurricane Katrina was. So we experienced extreme weather. And it was very scary. And then uh, about three months after that, we discovered we were having our first child. And I'm feeling emotional because climate change suddenly became very, very scary and very, very real. And I really wanted to do something about it. So um, I'd worked in community engagement in the arts before that. And then I was at home alone with a baby. And I was doing little things like turning things off at the plug and having to um, re-program the now DVD player. Um, and I found this organisation called the Moreland Energy Foundation and they were doing wonderful things because they had lots of money from the state government as part of the Moreland Solar Cities and they were running a programme called Zero Carbon Moreland which we affectionately called Zookum um, and I signed up as a participant and did all the things that they were saying I was a renter at the time and then fast forward a bit, second child, we bought a home um, and they came to my house to give us a bit of an energy audit and I managed to get myself a job with them, which was pretty great. Um, so I was doing community engagement for them as part of that program and at the end of the funding we did evaluation and it was very wonderful to see that we'd spoken to over 4,000 people about climate change and about reducing carbon emissions but we didn't actually know if anyone had done anything or if anyone had reduced their carbon emissions. Um, There was a calculate your carbon footprint online and check back in in six months and six months after people did it they got an email saying hey come back on and tell us what you did and I think about 10% of the people that did it went back six months later. So we realised that we really needed to do something that had action and measurable action. And um, METHYL with the NAGA, the Northern Alliance for Greenhouse Action Councils, uh, ran a bulk buy program and one of the big successes was solar. And we realised that solar was becoming very much normalised. People were looking at their neighbours' houses or local businesses, solar was going on the roof. At the time there were some quite favourable feed-in tariffs, so there was a good financial argument to put solar on and it was being talked about. And pretty much from that, Positive Charge as a social enterprise was set up to run this at scale. Um, So we went beyond Moreland and we approached other councils and said, we can run these bulk buys, we can talk to your community and we can get people to take action. Um, And we started off with five councils and we started off with about uh, six staff members and very quickly we realised that um, we didn't know how to make any money and we weren't business people and there wasn't any grants left and the government at the time were deniers. (laughs) Um, so we went down to three staff, 
And I think at one point there were two, because I, my contract ended and I had to wait about two months before they figured out if I could come back. Um, and now we are probably, between five of us, we're probably about three and a half full-time people. But I've got our last financial year results here that I'm very proud of. We reduced greenhouse gas and um, tons, but sorry, 64,602 tons of greenhouse gas emissions were abated. We assisted people, so mostly residential, but some small business, in installing 2.41 megawatts of solar. And we spoke to and helped over 5,000 households, 108 businesses, and we now have 15 subscriber councils in Victoria and have worked organising solar bulk buying in nine New South Wales councils. So, so from being the annoying housemate that turns things up at the club and annoyed everyone, I actually feel like there is hope, there is action. All of us in this room, the fact that we're engaged, that's, that's really good. We are creating the climate for change. That needs to happen in order for us to address climate change. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I get to speak to people and hear wonderful stories. And the stories aren't, as I said, they're not necessarily about climate change. They're about... Um, Pensioners who Darwin City Council helped fund through their rate scheme. You may have heard of the Solar Saver program. It was award-winning last year. They got 300 pension card households to have solar installed on their roof and pay it back through their rates. So that's addressing social justice issue and it's also helping people that wouldn't necessarily be able to afford solar. Um, and I get to hear about people. We're currently running a, a draft proofing and installation bought by Moreland. People who are vulnerable um, through health, that won't run their air conditioner because it's too expensive and then they're in hospital pretty much every summer. Um, and they can insulate their homes thanks to the support from Mona Council. Um, so we're not talking about these things as climate change, we're talking about them as bill management and bill shock or having a hot house. Um, having a, a glorified tent, we are talking about this before, having a, a house that isn't energy efficient. So. I get to speak to the people that are, do, are doing action with support. I also get to learn about the barriers to why so many people are not doing things. And I think a lot of it is people are overwhelmed and people don't know where to go and who to trust. So that's our role, is to be the trustworthy source and to get to people through council so that they know that we are a trustworthy source. The struggle we're still having is how to be financially viable. Um, and at the moment, we're doing that by offering solar bulk buys through councils and we get uh, a management fee from the supplier and that, that's keeping us afloat. So we're really looking to what's next. Once all the people who could afford solar and own their own home have got it, uh, maybe it's batteries, maybe it's heat pumps. Um, but yeah, watch this space because we hope to, to grow and grow. But we also want to help people who are vulnerable, who are renters. Call us if we can help. It will probably be me that answers the phone and stay hopeful. The next speaker was Professor Rob Adams from the City of Melbourne. I want to really tell two stories, and uh, Lucy, in a way, started with the first story. That story is about how we approach climate change and how we put that question to different audiences. And the story really started for me at the World Economic Forum where I've been lucky enough to go for six years. When I was invited, I thought, well, this is a huge opportunity to get cities onto the agenda. And 
to me, it, it seemed fairly obvious that if most of us are living in cities, the solution that we have to actually address is likely to come out of those cities. My experience was that we had four days of really fruitful discussion, and then we went into a plenary session, and someone had chosen the ten that would go to Dallas, and cities wasn't there. So I stood up and said, um, and my wife was sitting next to me going like this, you know, this is just been invited, sit down. Um, I can't believe that you wouldn't pick cities. 50% of our population are living in cities, 70% of the greenhouse gases are coming out of cities, and they're driving our economies. Why do you not want to talk about cities? And I think the problem with climate change too often is we just say we have a problem with climate change and we don't contextualize it. And if you don't contextualize it, it's such a huge problem that I think many people turn off and just say, I'll deal with it another occasion, but not today. If you change that question and say, climate change is a problem and we can deal with it in cities, suddenly all the opportunities open up from urban, urban forest strategies, to cities as a catchment, to different modes of transport, just about everything that um, we've been lucky enough to have politicians with foresight in the city of Melbourne to actually take on those agendas, including you know, building energy efficient buildings like CH2, which was built in 2006. So I think the challenge for us is when we approach this, is to try and contextualize it, and Lucy mentioned this, not, don't talk about the climate change, but bring it down to discussion where every individual can make a difference. And if we do that, and I'm always the optimist, I think we can actually turn this around quite quickly. The second story goes back to when I was at university. I was born in Zimbabwe. And if I wanted to study architecture, I had to go to Cape Town University, or there were three or four universities I could have gone to. I chose Cape Town. And when I got to do my thesis, and I'd been traveling overseas in my fourth year and actually discovered my passion for cities, not just architecture, but, but cities, I decided to do a project on the university campus, and I got involved with the university planning unit. And the problem they were facing was that, as baby boomers, we all hit the system together. And every university was challenged by this rapid growth of students and how they accommodated them. And what they were doing was expanding their universities, bigger footprints, more facilities, more buildings, more lecture theatres. Cape Town was surrounded by a national park sitting on the side of Table Mountain and couldn't expand. So they asked a different question. They said, how well are we using the stuff we've already got? And when they studied that, things like lecture theatres were being used for 17.5% of the time. So they said, why don't we just read timetable? They went from 5,000 students to 15,000 students, and I think they only built one or two buildings over the next 30 years. So when I went back to Cape Town 30 years later, I expected to see the campus change. It was a beautiful campus designed by Herbert Baker. It looked exactly the same. The only thing that I could notice was the vibrancy of that place 
It was open from 8 in the morning till late at night. And the question I started to ask myself was, why don't we just re-timetable our cities? We don't have to expand them. We've got enough stuff. And if you start to apply that philosophy, and it's one that I've been fortunate enough working, I came for an 18 month contract in 1983 and I'm still trying to finish it. <laughs> if you look at the city and say, so what do we not need more of? And the one thing we started with was we don't need more roads. So we started with a program called, we never called it that, but it was grey to green. How do we take asphalt out of the city slowly so if it grows, don't notice? <laughs> and convert it to footpaths, parks, and all the rest of it. It started very modestly. Um, in fact, I smile when I think of some of the early projects we did. But it slowly gained momentum to the extent that we've now taken over 80 hectares of asphalt out of the city of Melbourne and converted it to footpaths, parks, little reserves. And the interesting thing is, there's been very little objection. The ability to do that and, and to reprogram our infrastructure is, I think, the most exciting thing that sits before us at the moment. As we look at Metro Melbourne, if we were to take the simple step of saying we will not subdivide any more space, we'll actually come back on ourselves and allow ourselves to just get more out of the existing systems we've got. The savings financially, environmentally and socially are huge. You could double Melbourne's population by putting people on only on 90, oh sorry, 7.5% of the land, metropolitan land, all around existing infrastructure, tram lines, around railway stations, and on brownfield sites. You wouldn't have to build higher than uh, you know, five to eight stories along those corridors, and you can see it happening as you go down Smith Street, you can see those things happening naturally. The savings would be in the tune over 50 years of $440 billion in infrastructure savings you'd make. Imagine if we could invest that. That is 12 broadband, national broadband schemes. Imagine if we could invest that back into saving energy, climate change, and the rest of it, and some of the social infrastructure we need. You'll get from that study the idea of what is possible. I'm hugely optimistic about what we can do with our cities. Our message is one of communication. I, don't, I think there's a lack of trust between governments, uh, sorry, communities and governments, and I think that's a great pity. I think governments have taken out of their staff the intellect that used to be there and contracted it out. Government needs to become an intelligent client. And until we do that and have a conversation with the community and show them what the future looks like, it's not that scary, and we can get there. The next speaker on the panel was Dr. Stephen Bygrave. Climate solutions is something that's quite familiar to uh, myself and also the organisation I'm part of right now, and that's Beyond Zero Emissions. We, we are looking at the positive aspects of climate change. Uh, you know, we recognise the science, and we also recognise the benefits um, that will come from climate action. And many of those benefits mean... As, as Lucy mentioned, lower power bills, they'll mean more convenient ways of travelling through the landscape, such as taking high-speed rail and not travelling in aeroplanes. 
it'll mean farmers not using fertilisers and not having to till their soils as much because they had zero tillage uh, practices. It means uh, powering your home, your vehicle that might be electric uh, with renewable energy. So all of these are solutions that we can implement right now. And Beyond Zero Emissions has been doing that work now across each sector of the economy, the energy sector showing how we can have 100% renewable energy. And now we've got territories like the ACT actually going for 100% renewable energy and achieving it by 2020. They're well on track to having 100% renewable energy. That was unheard of even three or four years ago. Now we've got people doing it. Our most recent report is Australia as a renewable energy superpower. We hear every day from politicians and big business that we need coal and gas for our economic prosperity. Uh, that's, that's a myth. Uh, we can actually be a renewable energy superpower. Even a 20% renewable energy target in Australia will lead to $20 billion of investment in the renewable energy sector and some 30,000 jobs created. That's just a 20% renewable energy target. If we have a 28% or a 50% target, as, as Labor was proposing before the election, or a 90% target that the Greens were proposing, then you can double, triple, quadruple those numbers. And in fact, we also looked at how much investment is going into renewables over the next two decades, how much investment is going into energy efficiency, electric vehicles, and this investment is already, is already powering along. Over 50% of the investment in the global energy sector in the next two decades will be in renewables, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, biofuels and other things like that, clean tech. Only 1% of the investment in the next two decades in the energy sector will be in coal. This is the opportunity, this is the positive, this is the solutions uh, aspect to climate action. We also, in that report, Australia as a renewable energy superpower, showed through a very conservative set of assumptions that we have far more renewable energy, just solar and wind, not all the other renewable energy we have at our disposal, but just solar and wind, we have far more solar and wind resource in this country than coal, oil, gas and uranium combined. So let's harvest that energy and meet the full potential. I'd like to propose that people are the solution. We have all these technical opportunities and technical solutions, but we, all of us in this room, are a solution. Uh, what we've been finding over the last 18 months, we started an initiative called Zero Carbon Communities, and this is just uh, growing, uh, growing like crazy. I met with the Mayor of Byronshire in March 2015, he knew about our research. I said, how would you like to implement our research in Byronshire and be Australia's first regional zero emissions community? And he said, let me sleep on that. I'll get back to you tomorrow. And he rang me in the morning and said, yes, we're in. We're now working with Byronshire and the community there, as well as the council, to implement zero carbon solutions across energy, buildings, transport, land use and waste. We have 50 volunteers on the ground who are researching with us those solutions and community groups who want to implement those solutions as well. Word travels fast 
in northern New South Wales. The word got up to Noosa Council and uh, I met with the Mayor of Noosa Shire and uh, he said, I want to do what Byron's doing. <laughs> There's a bit of friendly rivalry between Noosa and, and Byron. So now over the last two months we've been working with the council up there to do an, a, a zero emissions baseline, a baseline across their, their fleet, their buildings, um, their energy use, their street lighting, their waste, uh, and we're, now we'll be moving to develop a, strat a zero carbon strategy with them. Word has now got up to Cairns, and they want to do the same. Um, so. We've got Lismore Council, we've got amazing things happening at the people level, at community level. We've got Urala aiming for 100% for, for renewable energy. We've got Yak and Danda going for 100% renewable energy. We've got Moreland. In, in the absence of federal, strong federal action, communities, local governments and state and territory governments are leading the way. We've got state and territory governments setting zero emissions targets, 100% renewable energy targets, or 50% renewable energy targets. We've still got Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party talking about 20%. They haven't even sorted out a post-2020, 2030 target yet for our emissions, and the current target they have is not going to get to meeting our uh, climate goals that were set out in the Paris conference. And we all know those goals are far too weak as well. I'm heading off to a new job in a couple of weeks with the ACT government because they want to take some of the work that Beyond Zero Emissions has done and they want to implement this in a state and territory government. And so I thought, wow, what an opportunity to build off their amazing work on 100% renewables but also to get electric vehicles on the ground, home charging, uh, home battery storage on the ground. Uh, electric vehicles, light rail and land use activities where we can actually have a state or a territory which is zero emissions. People are, are the solution. Don't feel that you can't do anything. I've been really proud to be part of the BZD team over the last few years and I'm proud to be moving to another role where we'll be able to implement some amazing stuff. Um, diversity is the key, diversity of ideas, being active, ideas oriented. People are the strength, people are the power. Thanks for caring about climate. Uh, you are the solution. Thank you. I'm just speaking to a lady from Morwell, Lorraine Bull, who's perhaps known to you listeners. Lorraine made a very interesting comment here about the future work for the Latrobe Valley. Thank you, Lorraine. What do you think? Um, as far as working with Latrobe Valley goes... Um, at the moment we are underemployed and as this transition away from coal happens we need to create new industries. We cannot rely on uh, having wind towers all through the valley. We don't get enough wind. Um, our solar reserves aren't equal to what you would find in um, Mildura or up in the northern area of Victoria. So we need to create new industries and they could be a huge diversity. Um, it may be in manufacturing um, batteries or the Earthworker project where you get solar hot water systems. They are planning to open a factory in Morwell very shortly. Yeah. But 
It's up to the community to try and stimulate economic activity so that we can employ people who are leaving the coal industry and who are reliant, um, the businesses that are reliant on the income that the families earn there so that we can still have a strong and diverse and happy community existing in the Latrobe Valley. That's right. They say for every miner that loses his job, there's a hairdresser, there's a school teacher and, and that. It's that flow-on effect, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it's not only the, the small businesses, it's the bigger businesses, it's the schools, um, it's the health services and the hospital. Okay, well, we were at the Playback Theatre tonight and they sang a song about Don't Leave Us Behind. Is that generally the feeling? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we really need to be ahead of the pack in creating the new industry before the coal power stations start to close down. Okay, you've mentioned some of the businesses. Where do you think the real leadership's coming from? Uh, the leadership is coming um, partially from the council. Um, some business groups are making many suggestions, so some of it's business as usual. But a lot of activity is coming from the community itself. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was Lorraine Bull, who's very active in the Morewell area. Listening to 3CR Radio. After that little interval, there were questions from the audience. The first question was on how soon can we expect to have battery storage for our solar electricity? The price of lithium batteries, for example, are expected to drop between 20 and 60% in the next four years by 2020. So this is becoming a very real proposition where householders will have the choice. Uh, of putting in home battery storage and you've got many people around Australia who are, who are going off the feed-in tariffs because the feed-in tariffs are coming to a close and they're all going, what should I do? And a lot of them are thinking about home battery storage, especially with the price reductions that we're seeing. Um, we don't advocate people going off grid because we have an electricity grid. Uh, we can have an electricity grid based on 100% renewable energy and we've already got that infrastructure so let's use wisely. And the battery storage can be a perfect complement to an electricity grid, which needs to get rid of coal and gas, uh, and we need more renewables. 
And so, so home, home battery storage, electric vehicles, rooftop solar are all coming together really, really nicely as a very neat package over the coming four to five years. A lot of architects now, when designing new homes, they're actually designing them with a special cupboard where you'll have your home battery storage. The take-up of the Tesla Powerwall as a home battery storage proposition is, is going like crazy. It's just taking off. Uh, there's other com companies in Australia like uh, Red, Red, Red Flow, um, Red, I think it was Red Flow, um, the battery company in South Australia. So th there's a whole bunch of um, options now on the market, not just Tesla. You know, we'll have electric vehicles we can charge in the home with with uh, with rooftop solar. We'll drive them to work. We'll charge our cars at work uh, if we drive and not get public transport, of course. Uh, and we'll have car parks covered with rooftop uh, PV. We'll come home with almost a completely charged vehicle. We'll plug the vehicle into our home energy systems and power our homes. Um, this is all a reality, and we've seen the rooftop solar revolution over the last three to five years where we've seen prices drop by 30% for rooftop PV. The same will happen for batteries and for EVs, electric vehicles. One lady living in public housing told Lucy Best how frustrated she was about the waste of electricity in her building and asked what can the council do about it. And I know exactly kind of buildings you're talking about. Do you mind letting me know which council you're with? Darren. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's okay. I think every council would have a story, a similar story. Um, so unfortunately that there is the issue of that you don't have much choice. Um, what we're doing is advocating on your behalf um, and METHOL, the Modern Energy Foundation, our, our parent organisation has a consultancy arm that does a lot of research and works with developers and sends reports to councils explaining why poor building design has financial and poor health implications for the residents. Um, but we're also trying to work with councils to figure out the financing of how, and, and the Department of Human Services, and how they can fund retrofits and improvements on these buildings. Um, so in terms of what you've got the power to do right now, keep being the squeaky wheel, keep making lots of noise, contact your council, contact us, um, and, and all of us will try and advocate on your behalf and improve the housing stock and the minimum requirements and put the case for the health and the cost implications of the, the conditions in which you're living. Sorry, I don't have a, a, a better answer for you, but I suppose it's that thing of don't give up hope. Yeah, thank you. We move now into the theatrical part of the evening. The playback conductor asked for responses, and one man, after some rather discordant music, called out, Discordant, and he was invited up onto the stage. First we'll hear the music.
you spoke the word quite um, melodically actually, you spoke the word discord. Tell us about discord. Where's the discord in your life or in this story? Um, we won't go into my life, but I, I think, I mean, what I heard, you were talking about the music, weren't you? What, what you felt in the music, yeah, and I heard discord. I heard um, notes that kind of troubled me that didn't seem to fit together and um, a, a sense of unease. And connecting that to the theme of this evening, which is obviously about climate change and our connection with that story, do you have a similar sense of unease and discord about this issue? Yes. <laughs> well, that's that then. <laughs> so, um, just tell me a little bit about um, when you were when you were little, when you were a child. Did you think about the environment at all? Were you? We heard about um, the annoying housemate turning on and off the. No, no, I wasn't that annoying housemate. No. Um, yeah, I remember reading a book and finding out about climate change, and I had what I call my oh shit moment, where I just oh. Okay, I heard other people talking about it and going, oh, that's a little bit boring. And, and then I actually found out what it was. I was like, oh, shit. I have to actually kind of, yeah, do something. <laughs> How long ago was the oh, shit moment? Probably about eight years ago. Okay, and so in the last eight years from that moment of going, oh, I'm going to have to do something, what have you done? <laughs> I joined the Greens party. And I campaign for them, and I um, stand as a candidate for them sometimes. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> but the federal elections pass, so it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so most of my energy goes through that, um, and I support my father, who who does a lot of climate um, activism. Yeah. And so it sounds like going from the, the oh shit moment to I have to do something, you've actually become very engaged um, and, and have dedicated your, your career and your life in a way. My career. Not your career because you didn't get elected or just... <laughs> <laughs> Potentially your career though, yeah, you were prepared to take that step, yeah. So coming back to discord, Despite all this action, despite everything that you've been doing and you're witnessing other people doing, you're supporting other people, there's still the discord. Tell us a bit more about that. I mean, we're in Australia, you know. <laughs> this is the biggest coal exporting nation of the, in the world. I, I can't remember the percentage, but a huge amount of the fossil fuels are being created by Australian coal. I mean, we're in the heart of the problem right now. So... As much as this, it's great to be in this room, we're just like a tiny bubble in a sea of shit. <laughs> That's pretty discordant, you know. I mean, it, you know, it's, I, I remind myself that, it, you know, in Melbourne and Darwin, you know, this is, and in this room, there's like subsets of bubbles. So, and we're like in the heart of the climate action bubble in Australia. Yeah, that's the discord. I uh, think we're going to give that to over to our actors now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Before I say anything else, now get a more on our Yumpanar. I'm Corn Walker. I acknowledge uh, this land, the creator of this land, the spirit, and the people of this land. I'm a Yorta Yorta person myself from two hours north of Melbourne. And um, a little bit, it wasn't that I didn't expect it. I wasn't, um, I wasn't necessarily 
unexpected that there was no mention of indigeneity within this conversation. And um, I'm quite involved in environmental activism myself and, and essentially um, First Nations activism. I'm at the core of it all, so... Because I've got a job for you. Ooh, the exciting job. Yeah, yeah, is you get to choose one of these beautiful actors to be you. Hmm. That's a really <laughs> tough thing. Um, I would like them all. Like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you see, they, they, that may end up happening. They may end up all becoming you, but let's just choose one specific one just for fun. Brother in the middle, Stephen. Okay, great. And so you were naming that you have been involved for a long time in Indigenous activism and Indigenous activism specifically with climate change or just activism in general? Indigenous, indigenous activism, um, you know, you don't even have to think about environmental activism. That is one of the core features of what Indigenous activism is, is, is how do we move forward um, sustainably? That's, that's what we think about every moment as Indigenous people. How do you sustain yourself? How do you sustain your family? And that is that is taking an approach that, that is constantly thinking about everything around you, every living uh, organism. So can I ask you, I'm just going to turn my chair so I can see everyone. Um, can I ask you, how do you, as opposed to the big, you know, how do you sustain yourself? How do I sustain myself? Try not to work very much. Um, I think that's part of the problem in this world that we work too much because we want too much and not actually just being present with the, the simplicity of the, the magic, the profound things that we can all have with one another. So someone mentioned earlier, you know, to take everything away and come closer and utilize the people power, which was some really beautiful stuff said by the panelists. Um, being mindful of people power the holistic nature that, that can evolve really easily when we focus on people power. And is there one specific, um, I mean I'm sure it sounds like there's, you know, we could sit here all night, but um, just recently, can you, is there something that stands, doesn't have to be recent, but something that stands out for you as a moment of people coming together, united around a particular cause and making a difference? That's a really good question because I've seen a lot of sadness in this country in my entire lifetime as an Indigenous person and I can't say there's any particular moment that really stands out that has shown that we're beginning to turn things around so you know we can protest on the streets and have an amazing connection with people we can begin to implement things at a grassroots level that are having an amazing impact but still to see this country going in such a steep decline down a really really dark path in regards to destruction of the environment um, Obviously, we haven't hit the milestone moments that we need to as a nation. I'm going to um, wave my magic wand, which I happen to have here. Um, you are, should, do you want to be Prime Minister or King or who, like, who would know? <laughs> just for a day, just for a day. Um, what, would, what would you, where would you lead us? Where would you, what would you, where would you help us to go? If you could go, okay guys, this is what we're going to do. That's a big question. I agree with some of the panelists' comments, taking out um, a lot of concrete within this city, but taking it a step further, taking out um, large pieces of infrastructure out of the city and replacing that with um, a whole array of things which would include cultural spaces that could be powerful places, not only for Indigenous people, but for all people to come and connect together because 
for me, a lot of the big problem that we have at the moment is disconnected people from one another, which is leading to excess consumption and a whole array of diseases that we have within our society. So actually reintegrating someone in spaces which have, have always been spaces involved in any um, indigenous community and ultimately we're all a part of some line of indigeneity. So it's, it's um, intricate, it's intrinsic to all of us. After this Yorta Yorta man, was a woman called Catherine. She said she was bothered by an awareness that the winter was too mild. She said every year her birthday fell around this time of year and it usually was much colder. She was also bothered by phone calls from her adult nephew called James. He was worried about extreme weather events. Now Playback Theatre turned this into a wonderful tale of Queen Catherine. The nephew is now up in the watchtower reporting alarming events until a final challenge, a dragon, appeared. It was wonderful to see these rather fragile perceptions played back to us as a story of resourcefulness in a way, facing up to climate change and definitely not wanting to. All those emotions that had been just subtly there in the woman's speech were now highly visible to us in the playback theatre. I hope it comes across to you. There was a great castle in a great kingdom. Now, every great castle has a watchtower. And I'm the watchman. Every day I go up the stairs, round the spiral staircase, a hundred flights, and up the top. And I look out, and I tell the others the news. Now, my special interest happens to be the weather. Oh, I can tell you all about the weather. Weather about cumulus clouds and lightning bolts and bees and how they responded. Oh! Aunt! Aunt! My aunt, the queen, lives down below in the great castle. Auntie! The weather is not should be! <laughs> You're right, James. <laughs> it's not good. It's winter, but it's not as cold as it's meant to be. And, and I can see a long way. There were floods washing people away. There were king tides that were almost taking over the whole island. My boy, that is right. That is right. There has been above average rainfall this year. In fact, it's been the worst winter in 359 years. years. And the temperature receiving from the sun has been recorded as being less than usual. Take that. Oh, facts. Facts are so reassuring. I don't have to worry. I've got some facts. I'll hold on to those facts.
times come when when people let things get out of balance and oh the next page is ripped out we'll have to work out what to do ourselves <laughs> I think we need to keep talking James hey we can't could we, we just can't. get under the bed let's get under my bed and put the covers over our head and the dragon will go away oh, I would James. In all the old stories, people go and they fight the dragon rather than ignore it. Is that a good idea? I'd like to ignore it. This room, and we all know that, 
and we're all committed and we do have hope because we do have each other and we all know, we all know that fantastic but very powerful and very true statement that don't ever doubt that a small group of people can change the world because in fact, how does it end? It's the only thing that ever has. And in the song just then, we had Danny saying, you know, I was here for South Africa, and we could say, yeah, and I was here for, I was here for women getting the vote, and I was here for the end of slavery, and I was here because I stood up at the back of a bus. So this is our time, and we are here. We are Melbourne Playback Theatre Company. Thank you so much for coming this evening. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. It was rather an unusual show tonight, between the left brain panel and then the right brain creative emotional side from Playback Theatre. The session was called Creating a Climate for Change and it took place at Northcote Town Hall. Thank you tonight for production team Teddy, Jodie, Roger, Andy and Jane. My name's Vivian Langford. See you next week on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Now stay tuned for Save Albert Park. Welcome back to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy, and that was a talk from the Northcote Town Hall, Creating a Climate for Change. Uh, the speakers we heard tonight in order were Lucy Bess, Professor Rob Adams, uh, Melbourne City Council and Dr. Stevens Bygrave uh, from BZE. And, yeah, um, we've got Erin with us again tonight, and she's got a few announcements she'd like to make. Thanks, Andy. Um, we've just got some things that we want to bring to people's attention that are coming up shortly. The first one is National Divestment Day. Uh, divestment has been a really powerful tool in taking away the social licence of a lot of the industries that have a really negative impact on carbon emissions and primarily the banks that fund them. So if, um, if people want to get involved in this powerful action, the National Divestment Day is happening um, on in early October, and if you go to the website marketforces.org.au, there's a whole list there of different events that are happening. But I'll just highlight a couple of them. So in Melbourne, on Saturday the 8th of October, at 11am there's an event in Fed Square in Sydney Saturday the 8th of October in Balmore Park and in Brisbane the same on Saturday the 8th of October at 11am in Queen's Park there's a number of other uh, events happening around the country in, in regional centres some of them on Friday the 7th of October but if you go to the Market Forces website so I'll just say that one again marketforces.org.au and look up events that may be in your local community community. It's a really powerful tool divestment to um, you know, really show that these uh, industries no longer have social licence to keep operating. So that's an important one. Um, and that's headed up, as I said, by Market Forces and 350.org have been um, really instrumental in getting that initiative off the ground. The other campaign that uh, we really would like to see people get behind is um, Save Arena. So Arena is the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and Get Up is um, currently engaged 
engaged in a campaign to save the um, money that's been ripped out of them by the Turnbull government. So there's currently a proposal that $1 billion will be taken out of ARENA. Now, ARENA is a really important agency. They've already completed 60 clean energy projects all around the country, a lot of them in regional and rural areas, and they are also managing another 200 projects. These projects are really important for taking renewable energy technologies from the uh, from the testing kind of stage right through to commercialisation, and there's been a number of them, whether they're you know large scale solar or Carnegie um, energy uh, technology that was happening in WA. You know, Arena's had a hand in getting a lot of these technologies through to the commercialisation stage, and it's essential that their funding remain. So, if people want to go to the Get Up page and look on their campaigns and find the Save Arena, there's a number of initiatives there from uh, signing petitions to chipping in some money for a media campaign that GetUp is running. Or on Twitter, if you look up the hashtag SaveArena. So those are a couple of really important things coming up. The other one that I would just uh, make sure people are aware of is the monthly BZE discussion group, which happens at the University of Melbourne. That's on the first Monday of every month. So have a look at the BZE website, bze.org.au, and there'll be some information there about the upcoming speaker. So that's always worth tuning into as well and getting along there and, and having a listen. So thanks, everyone, for listening, um, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. We've uh, also got our sister show on a Friday morning, uh, the BZE Tech Show, so make sure you tune in for that as well. And coming up, we've got Save Albert Park. Thanks very much, and see you next week.